Thanks for joining me today for this episode of the Simply Financial Podcast. This is episode number 39 of season four. As always, I'm your host, Christopher Calandra. Welcome everyone to our proactive year-end tax planning ideas for 2020 workshop. Boy, uh, that's a mouthful. But uh, thanks for taking a few minutes. Uh, One of my main goals as a certified financial planner is to help our clients recognize tax reduction opportunities both within their investment portfolios as well as in their overall financial planning strategy. So staying current on the ever-changing tax environment is really a key component to helping our clients win with money. So the objective of the workshop is to uh, share some strategies that could be effective if they're implemented when it makes sense before year end. Please note, and this is common sense but worth mentioning, is that this workshop, what we're going to talk about today, is not a substitute for using a tax professional especially because we work with clients in, I don't know if it's 20, 25 states, something like that, and every state has their own rules, and sometimes they don't uniformly uh, match the federal income tax rules. So you definitely want to check with your tax preparer. Uh, Our main theme for the workshop, my theme for the workshop, is that taking a proactive approach to tax planning instead of being reactive leads to, could and should lead to better results. I've seen that time and time again as I've worked with clients over these many, many years. Uh, This is my 28th year as a financial advisor. The agenda is pretty straightforward. Uh, We want to give an overview of tax planning so that when you look at your situation as 2020 fast comes to a close, that you have a good foundation of information to help you make some good decisions. Uh, Again, each taxpayer situation is unique. It's an individualized thing. So the good news is we're available to talk with you about any of the specifics of your situation. Uh, Many of you uh, that are on the call today know that we'll interact with CPAs. We do that routinely so that we can help uh, you get the best advice and make optimal decisions with your money, including mitigating taxes. Before I get to the presentation, uh, we're still experiencing a really challenging and unprecedented time here in 2020 with the pandemic and the economic shutdown, it's clearly been a crazy year. So I hope all of you have remained and will continue to remain safe, healthy, and sane. I've been joking that perhaps the sane part might be the most difficult thing. Uh, And there's an adage in my industry, and it holds true today as much as ever, and that is that your first wealth is health. So hopefully everybody is doing well. Whenever I do a webinar, I like to start with the five key areas of financial planning. These are the areas that we are going to work on with our clients consistently. Preservation planning, retirement planning, tax planning, and estate planning. Uh, Lastly, investment planning. Sorry, I screwed that up. Uh, Today's presentation is mostly focused on tax 
planning, but what we want to do when we're looking at things comprehensively is to consider the impact of any recommendation in one area, how that might impact other areas. Sometimes tax decisions could affect investment planning decisions, and sometimes it could have an impact on one's estate plan. So we want to keep in mind how all of these uh, key areas of financial planning interact with one another. So 2020, tax planning became a little more complicated this year. At the end of 2019, in December, uh, the SECURE Act was passed into law. And it seems like it was so long ago, and I don't think many people have had a chance to digest the SECURE Act fully, given everything that's happened since the pandemic arrived in February. On top of the SECURE Act, we had uh, the CARES Act, that was passed a few months ago in response to the pandemic. And these two acts, the SECURE Act and the CARES Act, have added some new laws and rules for taxpayers. <clears throat> so I want to talk a little bit about that. So first, let's start by quickly distinguishing the difference between tax planning and tax preparation. Tax planning is looking ahead before a year ends to look at different tax strategies that might help improve your tax situation. In contrast, tax preparation is filling out your tax forms after year end. The thing about tax preparation after year end is that you really can't do much. Whereas tax planning, you could employ one or more strategies that could help you out tax-wise. This workshop, my focus is more about tax planning, not tax preparation. It's about introducing uh, or reviewing some proactive ideas that can help you consider how you might be able to reduce your taxes. One of our founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin, said, by failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. So let's talk about tax planning, starting with tax brackets. In 2020, we have seven tax rates. There's 10% at the low end, followed by 12, 22, 24, 32, 35, and finally at the high end, 37%. Under the current law, the seven rate structure, which was created a couple of years ago by the Tax Cuts and Job Act, is scheduled to automatically phase out on January 1st, 2026. So it should last through the entirety of 2025. So here are the current tax rates for married filing jointly and single filers. So married filing jointly currently has lower rates on many amounts compared to the old system. What I want to point out from a planning perspective, and this is really something important to keep in mind, is that even if no changes are made to tax rates uh, between now and 2026, the law says that we go back to the older, higher rates, that's the left column that you see there with the arrow pointing to it, we're going to go back to those tax rates automatically, if not preempted by 
the passage of a new tax law, which may or may not happen. We have the presidential election coming up. It's not it's not out of the realm of possibility that we get more tinkering with the tax code, perhaps something even more uh, more substantial in terms of change, depending on who is elected and how things play out with our politicians in D.C. But again, the important takeaway is that if nothing happens, we go to the higher rates in 2026. So these lower rates and expanded brackets, when I say expanded brackets, your income is taxed at lower rates for longer as you move up the income spectrum. As the arrow shows, for many people, that means that when you get to 2026, money, for example, that's currently taxed at 24% would go up to 33% in 2026 and beyond. That's a, that's a pretty big tax rate hike that we're looking at in a few years. By, by historical standards, this tax rate and tax bracket structure is low. It could go lower, but if history is a guide, it's likely to go up over time and at least have a period when rates are higher. I don't have a crystal ball. I wish I did, but uh, again, playing the historical um, uh, statistics, these rates that we're experiencing now are low and are not likely to always be this low. Next, I wanted to touch on the standard deduction. So the standard deduction for individuals in 2020 is $12,400. And for uh, couples, married couples, filing jointly, it's $24,800. What the standard deduction is, if you take the standard deduction, and let's just use an example, you have $100,000 of income. Uh, if nothing else is done on your return, and I'm oversimplifying, uh, you would take the 100000 and then back out $24,800 to determine what you would be taxed on. And that standard deduction in that tax law that was passed a few years ago in the early phases of President Trump's administration greatly increased the standard deductions amount, standard deduction amounts. And what that meant was we had a simplification of the tax code. We have the seven rates, but the standard deduction being so high means that the vast majority of tax filers, somewhere north of 80%, probably north of 90%, are taking the standard deduction as opposed to itemizing their deductions. So itemizing is exactly as it's described. You add up all your deductions and that could be mortgage interest, it could be charity, it could be health expenses over a certain threshold. And the way the tax preparation is worth worked is that if your itemized deductions are greater than your standard deduction, it's better to itemize. What happened with the tax law and with the simplification, given the higher standard deductions, 80, 90% or more of American tax filers are using the standard deduction. They simply don't have enough itemized deductions, so the standard deduction is the better deal. Part of the reason why that number is likely to be over 90% of filers taking the standard deduction is because the tax law did trim something back. State and local taxes, SALT, as it's 
commonly referred to, is now limited to $10,000. Now, those of you that are listening that are in high-tax states like Connecticut, New Jersey, Illinois, you probably know about this. Because in those states, property taxes and income tax, state income tax liabilities can often be higher than $10,000. Before the passage of the, ta the most recent tax law, you were able to deduct unlimited amounts of state and local taxes on your federal tax return. One of the givebacks in exchange for the lower rates and the better brackets that I described before was this $10,000 limit. And for a lot of people, including me personally in Connecticut, I hit the limit and I can't deduct as much state and local tax as I used to. The other thing that happened was the interest deduction on mortgages is limited. It used to be unlimited. Now, if you're single and uh, married filing jointly, uh, you could only deduct interest up to $750,000 on a mortgage. For the vast majority of American citizens out there, their mortgages are lower than $750,000. But for wealthy individuals, high income earners, this also is a give back, almost not a tax, um, sort of a tax increase, not that their rate went up, but because they no longer could deduct something they used to deduct before. And for individuals that have mortgages over 750000 they often will also run into the SALT limit. So your ability to deduct mortgage interest change with the passage of this law. It's not uncommon for me to talk to clients and they think still they're deducting their mortgage interest when they probably are not because they're taking the standard deduction. So keep that in mind, please. Something that the CARES Act offered. Uh, this is the act again that was passed during the pandemic to help the country get through this very difficult period. This new benefit is known as a universal deduction. It allows for an above the line or before you calculate your taxable income charitable deduction, you for a married filing jointly could deduct $600. Now that's not an astronomical amount of money. Uh, but many people that I deal with are generous and want to give money to charity. And given what I just described, where many, many people are using the standard deduction, that means typically you can't deduct your charitable contributions. But this specific charitable deduction that came about through the CARES Act does allow for $600 regardless of if you are taking the standard deduction. So please keep this in mind. It's $600 or $300 per individual. It's not a life-changing amount, but any time we could minimize taxes, especially if we were giving money to charity anyway, we want to take advantage of it. So I wanted to bring that to your attention. Another area re related to charitable distributions is the Qualified Charitable Distribution, or QCD. This is still a strategy for retirement savers. So before we get into the QCD, let me point out that required minimum distributions, I have the shorthand here, RMDs, were changed to 72 with the passage of the CARE Act. It used to be 70 and a half. And many of you are probably familiar, because it's been around a very long time. If you have money in retirement accounts, 
pre-tax retirement accounts, you had to begin taking money out of those accounts when you got to age 70 and a half. Well, with the passage of the SECURE Act in December 2019, 70, ha 70 and a half got pushed out to 72. So that's the first thing. The next thing is, and this is kind of the stuff that keeps me gainfully employed because there's all these moving parts. So the SECURE Act made this change in December 2019. So we went into 2020 knowing that uh, 70 and a half became 72. When the CARE Act was passed, the CARE Act, uh, one of the many provisions in there to help the American population deal with all of the craziness, was waived RMDs for 2020. So you are not obligated to take a required minimum distribution in 2020. You can take money out of your retirement accounts if you want to, of course, and it might be taxable, uh, but you're not obligated to. It was waived for 2020 and will return to normal in 2021. This has been a neat planning tool. I speak with clients regularly that are over 70 and a half that have typically had RMDs and some are opting not to take it this year because they don't want to take the taxable income and they would just as soon leave the money in their IRA. Still others whose situations are different, they're opting to take the money out of the RMD, pay the taxes on it because it's part of their income plan and they want to use the money, spend the money, put it to good use in their lives one way or another. So that's kind of the preamble to talking about the qualified charitable distributions. And, and this is, again, one of the quirky things. When the CARES Act, excuse me, when the SECURE Act moved the, the age from 70 and a half to 72, they didn't change the QCD age. So now you have a differential in the rules that you didn't have before. So qualified charitable distribution or QCD means that if you wanted to take money out of your retirement account up to $100,000, once you attain the age of 70 and a half, you could give that money to charity and not pay income taxes on it. So if you had $100,000 in an IRA and you wanted to give that $100,000 to charity, you could take the whole $100,000 out, give it to charity, you would not pay income taxes on it. That is a really, really tremendous feature of the charitable rules that we live under today. It's very powerful. Of course, if you don't have charitable intentions, it doesn't make sense to give money away just to avoid the taxes. But many, many people do give uh, some amount of money. Could be a little bit, could be a medium amount, could be a lot. They do give money to charity. And using the QCD is a way to get money to charity while reducing your taxable liability. It's a great, great tool. One other thing about this is that if you are RMDH, and let's say you have to take out, I'm making up a number, your required minimum distribution, let's say, is $25,000. Again, just a random example. If you wanted to give that $25,000 to charity, you would comply with the RMD rule. It would count as an RMD. You would give the money to the charity or charities of your choice and not pay income taxes on it. It's a great strategy. What if you wanted to give 
only half of the $25,000 required minimum distribution. So you want to give, let's say, 12000 to charity, and you want to take $13,000 to take a trip. You could do that, too. The $12,000 would come out of the IRA, go to the charity without taxes. The $13,000 would go to you. It would be taxable income. You'd pay taxes on it, and that money would be yours to use. It's really, really fabulous. I think it's underutilized in the marketplace today. So I wanted to make sure, if you weren't already aware of it, um, that you are now. Capital gains tax rates. This is another feature of the tax law that was passed a few years ago, is the capital gains rates are pretty friendly compared to how they were before and how they've been in the past uh, over the longer term. So if you're married filing jointly, um, and you earn $80,000 or less, and you sell something with a capital gain, your capital gains rate is zero. I don't think a lot of people realize this. So that means that if you make less than $80,000 as a married couple, and you bought a stock for $10,000, and you sold it for $14,000, you'd have $4,000 that a lot of people believe would be subject to capital gains tax. But if your income is below that threshold, your capital gains rate is zero. This is also a neat strategy tool that we've used for clients in the right situation we, where we will purposefully sell something to create a capital gain because we know it's going to be taxed at a zero rate. Then we could conceivably buy back the same investments and restart the investments with a new cost basis trying to take advantage of the 0% rate. And this is very generous. If you're married filing jointly and your income is up to $496,000, your capital gains rate is only 15%. Again, that could go lower in the future, could go higher, but by historical statistics, uh, this seems to be pretty attractive to be able to have a 15% capital gains rate at that high an income threshold. Above the $496,600, by the way, I don't know why they don't use round numbers. It would make it so much easier. But above the $496,600 is uh, the 20% rate. So capital gains is pretty attractive. If you're selling property or investments with capital gains, uh, this is a decent time to pay capital gains rate. Now, I wouldn't recklessly be creating capital gain tax exposure, but it is definitely something that should be part of the thought process compared to in a few years, there's a good chance that the rates will be higher. One planning item that many, pa um, many taxpayers and what we think about is tax gain and loss harvesting. So that's the next thing I wanted to cover with you. So harvesting capital losses is a strategy that has a taxpayer selling assets that are at a loss to offset capital gains. So this results in a reduction or an elimination of tax on current gains. So let me just give you a very simple example. Let's say um, you have a stock, and it, it could be any asset, but let's just use a stock. You have a stock and you have a $10,000 capital gain in it. And let's say you have another stock that you have an $10,000 loss. 
Well, you can sell both of those positions, and normally the $10,000 gain would be subject to capital gains uh, taxes, but when you harvest the loss, the 10000 loss can be used to offset the gain. And so what we work with clients on with accounts that are not retirement accounts, that are taxable accounts, is we want to be very aware of opportunities to harvest losses and offset gains. It's a terrific way to reduce or eliminate capital gains taxes. Keep in mind, though, on the surface, loss harvesting produces an economic benefit, and that benefit's equal to the tax saved. However, it could only provide a timing benefit. The tax deferral could be valuable. You know, building up money in a stock, in my example, where the stock went from 10000 to 14000 well, there's something to be said for letting, if it's a good investment, that 14000 to continue to run and grow and not pay taxes on it as it goes from 14 to hopefully 18 to 25 and so on. So, you know, this tax loss harvesting and tax gain harvesting, it's a useful tool, but if it's played out to the extreme, it, it could be negative. Capital losses are highly effective if they could be used to offset income that's taxed at higher rates. So go back to my um, example. Let's say you sell something at a loss, but you don't have or don't want to sell anything that has a gain. You can sell something at a loss, and the key fact is you can use up to $3,000 of capital losses each year. Even if you don't have gains to offset, you could still do $3,000 capital loss above capital gains to offset ordinary income. So if you're in a pretty good tax bracket and you're at a high income tax bracket, um, that $3,000 loss if you sell something can be used to offset income that might be taxed at 35, 37%. This too is one of the harvesting strategies that we wanna pay close attention to. So hopefully I explained that okay. Moving along from the tax rate and tax harvesting, wanted to cover quickly retirement contribution planning because another way to mitigate taxes is to maximize your retirement plan contributions to build up your wealth in tax-favored savings vehicles. So these are the limits. Many of you probably are familiar with some, if not all of these. But the individual retirement account contribution limit is $6,000. If you're above the age of 50, uh, you can do the catch-up, which brings the maximum contribution to $7,000. Yay, one of the bonuses, I'll be 50 this year in 2020. So for the first time, I'll be able to go to $7,000. In the 401ks, uh, the... Uh, maximum contribution an employee can make is $19,500. Again, if you're over the age of 50, there's a catch-up provision of $6,500. So for individuals that are over the age of 50, the maximum contribution of the 401k is $26,000.
then there's simple IRAs, which are a retirement plan for smaller businesses. It's not used a ton, but those limits are thirteen five with a three thousand dollar catch up. I wanted to cover, and hopefully I'll explain this well, is family tax bracket management. And so that sounds really fancy, right? Uh, but because of the Secure, the Secure Act especially, uh, family tax bracket management has become much more important. Logically speaking, follow me on this. If you're in a higher tax bracket, then your beneficiaries, the people you would leave money to if you passed away, then it might make sense to let them take distributions after your death because their tax bracket is lower than yours. But again, follow me on this. If your beneficiaries are in a higher tax bracket than you are, then it might make sense to do the opposite. It might make sense to take distributions in your, in your tax before death. In other words, you pay the taxes on it and convert these accounts to maybe Roth IRAs or gift the money because if you're in the lower tax bracket, then your heirs, why not pay the taxes at the lower rate and you would get the arbitrage, you would get the difference in tax rate when the money's passed on to your heirs. Uh, this doesn't apply to everybody, but I've had several instances working with some families, one in particular, where the individual um, had an IRA and he did not have much income and his two children were very high income earners that were pushing the upper threshold of income tax brackets. So what we advised the family was that this individual should cash out his IRA, which at first glance defies common sense because we're usually taught that you don't want to take money out and pay taxes on money needlessly. But he was going to pay taxes at 10 or 12%, whereas if he would have held the IRA and passed away, his children would have been paying taxes on it that would have been at least 25%. So we were getting a tax arbitrage. We were saving taxes for the family to the tune of at least 13 percentage points. So when you're thinking about estate planning, and especially at older ages, this is definitely something to consider. Um, you could use gifting, which we're going to talk about in a second, and also Roth conversions, which we're also going to touch on. So Roth conversions. You can take money that's in a pre-tax retirement account and convert it to a Roth IRA. When you do that, you do have to pay taxes on the amount being converted. So if you wanted to convert 10,000, 100,000, 250,000, uh, whatever that amount is, you would pick up as ordinary income in that year, subject to state and federal income taxes. But when it's in the Roth IRA, you will not pay taxes on it ever again in all likelihood. The money will grow in the Roth IRA without any taxes and you could take it out tax-free later on. So you get tax-free compounding. One of the really attractive advantages to Roth IRAs is unlike other IRAs, there are no RMDs. The IRS never 
compels you to take money out of Roth IRAs. So that gives you more flexibility than you do with other types of retirement accounts. And if you pass away with a Roth IRA and you pass it on to your heirs, say your children or grandchildren, they would be able to take the money out of the Roth IRA tax-free. And again, that's another one of the family tax bracket strategies is that if you're in a lower tax bracket and your heirs are in a higher tax bracket, converting money to the Roth IRA might be attractive because then you're building up tax-free compounding that you can either take the money out if you need it tax-free or if it turns out you don't need it and you pass away, that money would go to your beneficiaries and they would take it out tax-free. Uh, this, again, with the passage of the SECURE Act, is a very, very important component to planning, not necessarily for everyone, but when it applies, it could be very, very powerful. Let's talk about gifting for a little bit as we begin to kind of uh, wrap up. The amount of money you could give per donee is $15,000. So you can give, any individual could give up to $15,000 to any other individual, and that gift would not be subject to taxes by either the giver or the receiver of the gift. It's under the gift tax exclusion. And a lot of families have used this uh, for a long time. The limit used to be 10000 but it's gone up over time. And so uh, that's a nice feature. And a lot of families uh, are generous to their children and grandchildren and make gifts. But it's less known that you could also make a payment directly to a medical institution to pay for the medical bills of someone else and that does not count as a gift for gift tax purposes. So if you had a family member or even just a friend, it could even be a stranger and you wanted to pay their medical bills, you don't have to worry about the $15,000. It's a separate thing. You could make uh, you could make the payment, you have to make the payment directly to the medical institution. I couldn't do it by saying, okay, here's $5,000. Why don't you go pay your medical bill? I want to help you out. No, you would have to pay it directly to the medical institution. Um, this is a little-known provision, but in the right circumstances, it could be a great gifting technique. Uh, related to that is a payment can be made directly to an educational institution to pay for the tuition of a student, and that, too, does not count as a gift for uh, gift tax purposes. So if a child is going to a private high school or going to college, or even taking some classes at the local community college, uh, you can pay directly to the institution and then it's not subject to gift taxes. Very, very underutilized strategy. Wealth transfer planning, uh, as I said with the tax rates and in a few other instances, we're living in a time when it's very generous. The exemption amount for gift, estate, and generation skipping taxes is up to $11.58 million per individual and $23 million for married couples. So the vast majority of American households, um, when somebody passes away, will not be subject to estate taxes. Not too long ago, uh, that was only like a million. And there were way, way more households 
especially those that own some property or a business. Farms were a good example where they had to pay estate taxes and there were a lot of strategies that were done in conjunction with attorneys to uh, work around the estate taxes. But the way that it stands now is uh, 11.58 and 23.1 for married couples. Uh, that means that most of us don't have to worry about that. In 2026, like I said earlier with the sunset provision, if there's not a new tax law that changes the landscape, it will default to the old rules, which were at 5.49 million and instead of 11.58. It's indexed for inflation, so it'll end up being higher than that, um, probably not a ton higher. Uh, so for families that are above five but below 11, having a conversation about setting things up with the anticipation of what will happen in 2026 is probably worth exploring. So year-end tax planning, the checklist. Um, you want to manage your brackets. Uh, you want to see where your income is relative to the bracket. The brackets are much more generous than they used to be, uh, but you want to be aware of brackets. If you're working with a CPA, they should be able to help you with that. Uh, itemize deduction. Uh, you want to be aware if you have a chance to itemize because you're above the standard deduction, you want to take advantage of that. We talked about gain and loss harvesting, retirement planning, maximizing your retirement plan contributions, and using Roths when they make sense, education planning with 529 plans in particular, a key component of planning for a child or grandchild's education, charitable planning, state tax planning, and planning for major financial life events, um, but that's the year-end tax planning checklist. You could go through it. We'd be happy to help you. Uh, go to your tax professional. We did do uh, this month uh, a mailing that uh, corresponds nicely with tonight's presentation. Uh, so if you haven't taken note of that, please review it. If you happen to be listening and you don't have it, uh, call the office, contact us through the website, ElliotWealth.com, and we'll get you a copy of the uh, tax planning presentation. So as I said at the beginning, your health and well-being is our highest priority. I and the rest of the team here at Elliott Wealth, we appreciate the opportunity to help you with your financial needs. We want to help you win with money, make smart financial decisions, avoid mistakes, and we want to, and we always are planning for your success with you. We want to do that together. So that's the end of the presentation. I wanted to keep it at about 45 minutes. Those of you who know me, sometimes I could uh, go on a bit. But I'm going to leave the presentation there. Uh, if any of you have any questions, please email uh, the office or contact us through the website, again, that's www.elliotwealth.com. Hopefully you found the information value, valuable. Again, I hope you all stay safe and healthy. And if there's anything we can do, please let us know. We're happy to help. Thank you and have a great night. 
The views expressed are not necessarily the opinion of Sage Point Financial Incorporated and should not be construed directly or indirectly as an offer to buy or sell any securities mentioned herein. Investing is subject to risks, including loss of principal invested. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. No strategy can assure a profit nor protect against loss. Please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon when coordinated with individual professional advice. Please note the information being provided is strictly as a courtesy. When you link to any of the websites provided here, you are leaving this website. We make no representation as to the completeness or accuracy of the information provided at these websites, nor is the company liable for any direct or indirect technical or system issues or any consequences arising out of your access to your use of third-party technologies websites, information, and programs made available through this website. When you access one of these websites, you are leaving our website and assume total responsibility and risk for your use of the websites you are linking to. Securities and advisory services are offered through SagePoint Financial Incorporated, member FINRA SIPC, insurance services offered through Elliott Wealth Management, LLC, not affiliated with SagePoint Financial.